Welcome everyone to Quality, the equal podcast that is exploring quality in emergency care. I'm Arjun Venkatesh, I'm the host, and my hope is in the next 25 minutes or so to help people understand a lot more about not just quality improvement, but big topics in emergency care. This is part of our series on substance use disorders as part of our work improving care for alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder in EDs across the nation. Today, we've got some excellent guests and we're gonna be talking about severe alcohol withdrawal. We've got Scott Weiner and Kate Hawk, who are our Equal Substance Use Disorder Initiative leads. And also joining us are Lewis Nelson, who's Chair of Emergency Medicine at Rutgers University Medical School in Newark, New Jersey. And Ruben Strayer, who's Associate Medical Director and Director of Addiction Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, today happens to be a day that we're all under the haze of the recent forest fire. So hopefully uh, we'll provide some clarity when we talk about severe alcohol withdrawal. I'm going to kick off with one simple question for the group, because I think it's something many of our listeners are thinking about as part of their quality improvement work they do in this space, which is why the new focus on alcohol use disorder in the ED? Many of us, whenever we trained, have been taking care of people with alcohol use disorder for years. Uh, we'll probably feel like we thought we were very comfortable with the management withdrawal. We thought we were uh, very comfortable recognizing it, diagnosing it, and treating it. But it seems like there's a new national push and national attention to this issue. And we're just sort of, you know, where does that come from? Maybe, Lewis, you can kick us off. Yeah, thank, thanks, Arjun, um, and, and thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I, I do think that we've, the paradigm has shifted a lot in emergency medicine. I mean, we, as we faced substance use disorders, particularly opioid use disorder, it's opened up a hole in the world for us looking at our patients and realizing that there are many of these issues that we fail to address, and there are opportunities to address them. We, we know that alcohol use disorder is prevalent, as you've said, but we've really ignored it. And we basically just told people to go out and find treatment. But as we've recognized it, there's pharmacotherapy and connectivity to care that we can actually introduce to our patients before they leave and make sure that they follow up. I think we, we're doing a real service for the patients that we care for. I'd expand on that and um, say, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, just to dovetail onto what Lewis just said, what we learned during the opioid addiction crisis uh, that we've been in the midst of for the past uh, 10 or more years is that not only are we able to effectively intervene on the underlying use disorder, uh, which is something that has always been outside the purview of emergency medicine, not only can we do that, we must be the ones to do that. Because in many instances, the emergency department is the only place that these patients seek care. It is the only contact that many of these folks have with healthcare. And the consequences of untreated um, substance use disorders are so overwhelming, and we learned that so acutely during the past 10, 15 years watching uh, opioid overdoses skyrocket. Uh, we now see the opportunity that has been before us in front of our eyes this whole time um, with alcohol use disorder, and it's very exciting that we're harnessing some of the skills that we learned and that we learned we could apply um, in managing OUD to uh, address um, what we, what, what I call the, the saddest show on earth that we've all had front row seats to every day for our entire careers. Thank you. I wanted to just really dive right in because I think you just hit the nail on the head, but this is something that we watch every day, every shift, all of us. It's, it's hard to find an ED that doesn't have this experience. We're focusing today on a, acute and severe withdrawal. And so I wonder if you could just, just level set a little bit. I mean, I think a lot of us, depending on when we trained, we just knew alcohol withdrawal equals benzos and give a lot of benzos. Um, and I think things have changed 
now uh, as far as there's phenobarbital, uh, doses, different types of benzos. I'm just wondering if uh, you can comment on that and perhaps maybe a corollary is, Lewis, I know you worked recently on an, an, the guideline with ASAM around uh, withdrawal and just if anything new or novel came out of that that you think would be interesting for the audience. Hey, thanks, Scott. Yeah, th that was a pretty vast document uh, and it covered a lot of ground. Uh, I guess what's relevant to the questions that you're asking is how we approach alcohol withdrawal differently now than we did say in the past. And we have tried to move away a little bit from going with high dose IV benzodiazepines. Uh, they work, at least they work in the short term, but they have a lot of adverse implications, both in terms of acute management and the need for um, intensive care unit, you know, management and 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 prolonged delirium. And we tried to focus on non-benzodiazepines, and and there's a whole host of them people have looked at uh, for managing at least early on alcohol withdrawal before it gets to the severe stage. Uh, perhaps looking at drugs like carbamazepine and gabapentin to try to sort of reduce the need for benzodiazepines. I still think benzodiazepines are the mainstay. And I still think oral benzodiazepines, as best you can use them, are the best way to go. The kinetics of the drug is most favorable, uh, or certainly more favorable than the intravenous uh, forms of the same medications. It reduces intensive care unit needs if you can use oral medications. The, the, the timing is important because it, it's not going to work as quickly as an IV medication would. But if you have the half hour for the medication to kick in, it's a much smoother experience for the patient. And for the, for the clinical care team. So, so there are a lot of alternatives uh, that we're looking at. Drugs like phenobarbital have always had an adjunctive role for people with severe alcohol withdrawal. Uh, there's a move now towards looking at phenobarbital monotherapy. I'll probably let Ruben address that question because I'm still not a, a believer in that. Uh, I'm not sure he is either, but I'll, I'll hear from him. But I, I, do, I do have some concerns with phenobarb monotherapy because of its uh, you know, respiratory depressant effects and, and some of the other consequences. Of it. There are definitely some advantages that it would carry over benzodiazepines, but I think there are some real concerns as well. Um, I'd suggest that uh, we want to be very clear about um, differentiating the mild to moderate group of patients from severe alcohol withdrawal. Mild to moderate alcohol withdrawal is extremely common. Uh, there's been a big push to uh, reduce our reliance on deliriogenic benzodiazepines in, in that group. And some of the alternatives that Lewis just mentioned, I think, offer a lot of opportunity to um, reduce or even eliminate benzodiazepine use in certainly ambulatory patients who are potentially going to be discharged. Uh, that's not the focus of today's conversation. If we want to hone in on severe alcohol withdrawal, um, this, of course, is a, a potentially very dangerous disorder that um, requires usually intravenous uh, medications to control. And I think that what Lewis might be speaking to has to do with trying to get on top of these patients' needs, withdrawal needs, before it reaches um, the stage where uh, the patient is too sick to um, to use oral medications that can offer more advantageous pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. Once the patient has declared themselves as severe um, alcohol withdrawal, whether you want to use Gestalt, um, uh, CWA score, uh, RAS score, um, the uh, the focus there really should be on immediately effective uh, use of titratable um, 
medications to allow us to get on top of their withdrawal symptoms and prevent progression to um, to the mo most dangerous consequences of um, alcohol withdrawal. You know, if I could just cap on that for a second, I think I think you're right. I think though one of the concerns that I, I see is that people jump too quickly into the decision that somebody has severe alcohol withdrawal and start over medicating them. Uh, you know, most people can take oral, and oral is, in my mind, preferred. Certainly, once somebody's un, uh, you know unable to take oral because they're so difficult to manage, or for other reasons, they need to get intravenous medications. And I I, I agree with that. I do I do think we um, struggle with trying to understand when somebody can benefit from oral versus IV, and we're a little bit quick to jump on the severe. Um, bandwagon. You know, I, I like the RAS score and I like to see people, I probably wouldn't call you severe until your RAS was at least a three, but even people with three can be de-escalated to the point at which they can take oral medications. Um, it's not their heart rate and it's not their diaphoresis that matters. It's their, it's their behavior. And as long as we can manage their behavior and they can take oral and you have the time, I would really prefer to see oral, but obviously you're right. If they can't take oral or they're beyond that point, they need to get IV benzodiazepines. I think there's sort of two challenges that I heard in what you, you guys both articulated. One is I think we're quick to talk about different scores like CWA scores and RAS scores. Um, but in most of our EDs, our, we're not gonna, we don't have nursing staff that are trained at that. Is that something that sort of I can do as a doc alone? And if I had that, data, does it actually help me with dispositioning these patients? One of my biggest challenges is I can have a patient in severe withdrawal, um, and I know that that's pretty harmful. I want to admit them to the ICU, but if they're not intubated, the ICU is like, well, they're not sick enough to come here. And then the floor says, well, a patient with withdrawal is too, is too sick to come to the floor. And so how do I juggle that? There's a couple questions buried in there. Um, the first has to do with the use of decision instruments and scores um, to quantify moderate, mild, severe withdrawal. And uh, the, the second is, you know, how do you uh, manage that patient who seems to be in between uh, services? So too sick for the floor, not sick enough for the ICU. Uh, this is, of course, going to be very context dependent and institution dependent as to which services are going to take what, uh, but just to add to what Lewis was saying earlier, for patients who aren't clearly in severe withdrawal, um, most of these patients can, you can get on top of their needs with oral medications and in a span of a couple of hours, bring them to a place where they can be managed safely on the floor. And there's very few emergency departments uh, that I know of that are using a CWA score, um, certainly a physician administered CWA score because it takes a fair amount of time to do CWA. Lewis mentioned the RAS score. And one of the reasons the RAS score is so, so popular is because it's very easy to administer and can be scored in, in seconds. I think there's still a fair amount of subjectivity uh, around scoring on a RAS um, as well as a CWA. And so you can introduce some variability in practice there, but um, Trying to harmonize people around, for example, a RAS score might go a long way within a department and even in between departments, between uh, emergency department and ICU in terms of which patients require um, a higher level of, of care. You know, I, I think that most people who need ICU care come in and withdraw severe enough to need ICU care. Once 
if we get people early enough in their withdrawal, especially people that we care for who develop withdrawal while they're in the emergency department, most of them can be managed with the medications we could provide them. Our goal should be to admit nobody with alcohol withdrawal to the ICU. And I think there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy here. When you give somebody an IV medication for their alcohol withdrawal, I think they wind up going to the ICU. I think if you don't start with IV medications, assuming again, not the population that's coming in severe, uh, but if you start with oral medications and you stay on top of your patients with withdrawal syndrome, um, you could probably keep most of them out of the ICU. It may be worth diving into the medications themselves here because that does make a difference in terms of their disposition and their trajectory. So uh, one of the big trends in managing alcohol withdrawal in the past uh, couple of years has to do with using medications that accumulate and self-taper. Um, and so I'm talking about, of course, phenobarbital and diazepam in contrast to, for example, uh, lorazepam, which um, doesn't accumulate in the same way. And you can therefore potentially enter into more of a cycle of uh, chasing your tail when a dose of lorazepam wears off. Whereas once you get on top of your patient's um, uh, agitation and uh, hyperdynamic vitals with either phenobarbital or uh, diazepam, generally uh, you've put in place um, a self-tapering um, sort of slug of medications that will continue to provide benefit and control the patient's withdrawal withdrawal uh, over time. And one of the great uh, selling points of, for example, phenobarb, and there is literature to support this, uh, is that you can reduce ICU admissions by, for example, giving a big dose up front that tapers over days. I'd love to follow up on that a little bit. So, because I think one of you mentioned before that you're not really a believer in phenobarbital. And we're we're starting to use it, and it actually does work quite well in certain patients. I'm just wondering where the controversy lies around that medication. I think I was the one that said that, Scott. Um, I, I, my concern with phenobarbital, if you think back to the history of, <clears throat> of management of alcohol withdrawal, back in the 1950s, all we had was phenobarbital. And then when the benzodiazepines came out in the, in the 60s and 70s, we switched to them as a much better treatment option. And here we are, you know, 50, 60 years later saying that, boy, the, the newfangled kid on the block is no good anymore. We should go back to the old treatment, which we got rid of because it was so problematic. Now, you can argue that healthcare has changed. We have ICUs now and we didn't have ICUs back then. But the fundamentals of how the drugs work hasn't changed. You know, benzodiazepines are, are, are significantly safer from a respiratory depressant perspective. You can push, you can push diazepam into people at fairly high doses, 600, 800, 1,000 milligrams, and probably never need to intubate them. But as soon as you give somebody a loading dose of phenobarbital, 18, 20 milligrams per kilogram, you pretty much need to intubate them. Even people with, even people with severe, with ex extensive uh, alcohol and sedative tolerance. So I do think they carry some risk. Now, I, I would argue that the worst thing you could do for someone with alcohol withdrawal is intubate them. And there's data to, to support that because they are essentially petri dishes just waiting to develop pneumonia and and dvts and other complications very difficult to manage poor underlying protoplasm and, and bad physiology so if you can avoid that i think you're better off it's the same argument with propofol although propofol is a nice drug because it's easily titratable whereas phenobarb is just the opposite ruben's point is right on i mean if you can max if you can maximize somebody's level station and let the drug auto taper that is the perfect model e even though it never truly works that way and you always have to top people off a little bit. 
uh, it's still it's still a great model. Uh, the alternative model is, is the propofol model where you could just snow somebody and then turn it off intermittently and see where they are in their withdrawal syndrome. But both of those have advantages that benzos don't. Benzodiazepines definitely leave you after high doses with the delirium. That makes it a little bit harder to manage them. That's the only argument against high dose benzodiazepines. And there are workarounds for that. And, you know, alternatives, but you really sort of have to ask that question about can you manage this person without intubating them? I think the, the evidence now is, is accumulating, and I think pretty conclusive that at a dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram over 30 minutes, which is the regimen that I think that a lot of departments have gone to, um, that significant respiratory depression is, is very unusual. Um, I myself have used that um, dose dozens and dozens of times, if not hundreds of times at this point. And uh, I actually find the opposite to be true because when I try to manage some of these patients um, with benzodiazepines, because of benzodiazepine resistance that can be, uh, you can see in, in these very heavy alcohol users, um, you end up escalating benzos so rapidly. Um, and it's, in, in my view, can be very easy to just push these huge doses that sometimes you can run into trouble, especially if you're using lorazepam instead of diazepam. With diazepam, intravenous diazepam, you, it works within minutes and you really sort of know where you are. It, it's, it's much harder to cause trouble with intravenous diazepam. And I uh, am fully, uh, fully on board with uh, diazepam over lorazepam. I think that's, I think even though there's um, no consensus there, um, I think that uh, we know that with lorazepam, because of its delayed onset and the fact that it doesn't accumulate in the way that diazepam does, you can, you can end up um, pushing a lot higher doses than you need of lorazepam and you can really end up uh, in, in trouble. The, the delirium associated with benzodiazepines that Lewis referred to is very real and causes a lot of trouble downstream. In, in contrast, um, if you're able to take even the, these very severe withdrawal patients up front and deliver um, a 10 or even 15 milligram per kilogram uh, dose of phenobar phenobarbital um, over 15 to 30 minutes, uh, I think that the literature demonstrates that this is very unlikely to lead to um, respiratory depression and often um, really gets on top of these patients' withdrawal sy symptoms in a way that they are much less likely to be resistant to compared to, to benzodiazepines. And again, offers this self-tapering mechanism that um, reduces downstream resource utilization. So I'm a fan, I'm an advocate for phenobarbital in the severe alcohol uh, withdrawal patient. I wanna draw a clear distinction between using phenobarb in a monitored setting for severe alcohol withdrawal to using um, oral phenobarbital potentially as an outpatient for alcohol withdrawal. And um, although unlike Lewis, I don't remember that transition from, um, from barbiturates to benzodiazepines um, for out outpatient management of, of uh, anxiety um, in the 50s. Um, uh, I fully agree with his concerns um, around using phenobarbital as an outpatient and a prescription for phenobarbital which in, from my perspective is, is just simply too dangerous to advocate. Yeah. Well, we are comparing a little bit of apples and oranges because the way people use diazepam is bolus dosing and they don't, they don't infuse it in over a 20 minute period like you do with phenobarb. And if you go back to the benefits of oral 
benzos, it is all about the pharmacokinetics, right? High dose IV benzos lead to tachyphylaxis, which is essentially acute tolerance. So it, it's a bit of the chasing the tail model that you talked about before. So high dose benzos IV rapidly lead to more high dose benzos IV rapidly. If you infuse it in or give it orally, a lot of that goes away. And because your cumulative dose of benzodiazepine is much smaller done that way, the delirium is much less of a concern. So I think we, you know, if we try to relook at how we use benzos, it might actually lead to a much different outcome. So I think, Ruben, I think you just answered the question I was about to ask. But I mean, I, so I think a lot of times what's helpful for pe people to think about are specific cases and sort of, you know, in this instance, what would you do? And so if you, you know, would love to hear, I, I you know, from both of your, your sort of initial approaches for somebody who's coming in in moderate withdrawal, um, may have, have a history of withdrawal in the past that includes complication, you know, it has been complicated by seizures, not necessarily uh, prior DTs coming in. Their last drink was about 24 hours ago. Um, they're tachycardic. They're a little shaky. You know, where, where do you start? And then once you start there, how long before you give another medication? Lewis? I tend to still use benzodiazepines um, as the initial approach. Uh, I still happen to like chlorodiazepoxide. I'm not against using other oral benzodiazepines. Uh, tried and true, easy to dose. Uh, we understand them. They're very long acting, so they have a lot of benefits. Um, I do have, you manage, you have to manage expectations among the other folks in the emergency department because they're not instant on. Uh, but they do tend to work. Um, I do like once people are controlled. So we'll, 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 we have an observation unit protocol for managing some of these patients, but I also discharge a lot of them. I tend not to use oral benzodiazepines when I discharge these people, and I'll often use drugs like gabapentin or carbamazepine when, when I discharge them. But, but you know, unfortunately, um, again, it's a sad state, but many of these people in my population, at least, just can't go home. They don't have a place to go. So I really do wind up obsing or, or sometimes admitting some of these patients because there's no alternative. Uh, that, that, that is very much dependent on where you, where you work and the population you work with. One thing that comes to my mind, we have a lot of you know, medical directors and quality directors uh, that follow our podcast. And one of the real pressing challenges in the last few years, particularly, has been drug shortages. And so there's been a lot of publications about drug shortages at our own institution. We are frequently short on whether it be IV lorazepam or IV diazepam. And so knowing that that's a reality, knowing that it's likely that we anticipate ongoing benzodiazepine shortages in the coming years, how does that change the way you think about management in the emergency department setting? Um, well, I'll just uh, start by, to answer the question, I'll start by reinforcing um, my my preferences that align with Lewis's uh, on this measure, which is that I'm uh, a big fan of chlorodiazepoxide as well, which I find to have a tremendous uh, margin of, of safety. Um, I am notorious in my institution for handing out 200 milligrams of uh, chlor chlorodiazepoxide to uh, anyone who will accept it. Um, I've on more than one occasion uh, had an error where uh, 200 milligrams of chlorodiazepoxide was given to someone who does not have alcohol use disorder, who doesn't have any tolerance whatsoever, and there was no um, adverse outcome there. You just have this tremendous margin of safety with Librium. And so for the patient, Kate, that you um, that you brought up earlier, 
that that to me, as soon as that patient hits the door, I want to see if I can get on top of their symptoms with 200 milligrams of oral uh, chlorodized epoxide. And uh, you often don't know at, at the outside which way a patient is going to go with their withdrawal. And uh, so if you hit them early on with 200 milligrams of chlorodized epoxide and they respond, then you sort of have identified that patient is going in one direction. That's going to be someone that's potentially headed for OBS or discharge that can be managed, as Lewis mentioned earlier, with oral medications. If after 200 milligrams of chlorodized epoxide, you go back and check on them 20, 30 minutes later, and now their heart rate is 170 and they're delirious, well, they have uh, told you that this is someone who has escalating withdrawal, not going to be responsive to oral medications, and then requires severe withdrawal management. To go back to uh, sort of hone in on Arjun's question having to do with shortages, I've actually found this to be a great uh, opportunity to experiment with different options. And I've gotten a lot of experience with agents that I otherwise would have no experience with because I've had to. Uh, and so um, absolutely gabapentin has emerged as a great option for patients who are candidates for oral uh, treatment of, of withdrawal that not only turns out to be as effective as benzodiazepines for mild to moderate withdrawal, but carries the significant benefit in my view as being something that can be uh, continued in an ongoing fashion to manage cravings as management of the underlying alcohol use disorder. I think that we have an opportunity here to harness physicians' um, concerns around prescribing uh, benzodiazepines to people with AUD for a concern, probably unfounded concern that it's gonna cause respiratory depression when, when co-ingested with alcohol, but um, we can sort of bypass those concerns by uh, advocating for the liberal use of uh, gabapentin in this context, which is very effective to for mild to moderate withdrawal and also um, has uh, this utility as an anti-craving drug. The main caveat with gabapentin is you have to be very cautious in especially elderly people with renal insufficiency. It is entirely cleared by the kidneys. And, uh, if, and when it accumulates, um, especially in elderly people can cause significant sedation. And we know um, that it's uh, a favorite uh, drug of misuse among people with OUD. It seems to have this sy synergistic euphoric effect um, in patients with OUD. I'm talking about gabapentin. And so you may wanna think twice um, about prescribing high, high doses of gabapentin in patients with coexisting opioid use disorder there is a signal of, in, of uh, increased harm in, uh, for example, overdose data, uh, where we find a lot of patients with opioid overdose have um, gabapentin in, 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 their, in, their, in their system. So those are two caveats. Um, but otherwise, um, I've pivoted to using a lot of gabapentin um, for mild withdrawal, uh, even moderate withdrawal in the department, and then as outpatients. I'm so glad you brought that up. I, gabapentin is a, a kind of a new favorite of mine uh, for this specific reason. Now, Lewis, do you use gabapentin at all or have you integrated it into your practice either for ambulatory treatment or people who might stay in the hospital? You know, it really has become a go-to drug in our observation protocol that we use for our withdrawal patients. Um, it hasn't really fallen into big favor in the outpatient management that we do directly from the emergency department. And maybe just because it's a little bit confusing to get people started on it, maybe because there's a little bit of a concern about, about its misuse. But for whatever reason, we seem to think that when people go to the OBS unit, they're better able to handle it when they leave. And maybe it's just an educational component. 
can I ask a quick follow-up? So um, I'm hearing a menu, right? There's a lot of possibilities here, but let's take a, a patient that we've all seen in their 50s, they're undomiciled, they look like they're, they're 80, they're in the hallway, they are tremulous, they're hypertensive, they're still talking with you, they're feeling like they're in withdrawal. What What's your go-to? Are you, Ruben, you're giving Librium, it sounds like? Yeah, Those? so uh, for moderate for moderate withdrawal in that case, uh, I'll give 100, 200 milligrams of epoxide, uh, and in one to two hours, I think you'll have a good sense of what this patient's needs are going to be. Lewis? Uh, that's I do as well. I probably start a little lower. I might start at 75 or 100, but the same concept uh, as Ruben just said. Great. And gabapentin, any role there? Or only if you don't have the Librium? So I, I use that sort of after, I, I start with gabapentin after I've established that this patient is not on an escalating uh, withdrawal trajectory. Um, and um, it's just very hard to know at the outset of care. Some patients, uh, they were just seen for the same thing three weeks ago and they ended up intubated in the ICU and you, you sort of have a sense of you know where you're headed there and you know. Most patients, you just don't know. Uh, our prediction tools um, are very poor outside of the single element of has this patient had severe withdrawal that ended up in the ICU before? But outside of that one historical feature, it's very difficult to know which way uh, a patient is going to go. Um, and so that's why I sort of like that, what I call a Librium challenge there that, that is, uh, at least in my mind, has been able to help help direct me, direct my therapy. But Scott, you point to a really good problem that we have, which is that over the past five um, years or so, we uh, in the emergency medicine and addiction community have developed a, um, a significant menu of, uh, of of alternatives and options. And so now we're left with uh, this, uh, larger questions around which uh, drug or drugs um, is best for the patient in front of us. And whereas I think many of us 10 years ago would have just had a couple of items on our menu, uh, we now have like a panoply, um, carbamazepine, valproic acid, uh, gabapentin, then the whole host of benzodiazepines, not to mention uh, phenobarbital. So there's a lot of different options. And uh, in many patients, there's going to be more than uh, one possible avenue to success. Yeah, I agree. You know, the one thing I want, just want to add, which is somewhat related to what Ruben said earlier, the, the best predictor of withdrawal and bad withdrawal is previous withdrawal and bad withdrawal. There's no question about that. The one the one thing I like to see, and it's a, a it's a it's a blood test I don't get on many patients if I can avoid it, is a blood alcohol concentration. And that, that's probably the best lab predictor we have of, of the development of withdrawal or at least the severity of the development of withdrawal. Because if you're withdrawing at an elevated blood alcohol level, you know you have that far to fall until you see the maximal level of withdrawal. If the, if they're at zero when you see them, you probably have a sense that you're about as bad as it's going to get. It's an imperfect marker, but it's probably the best marker we have, I think. I'll reinforce that and say that in patients where I'm starting an IV uh, uh, for whatever reason, whether to administer therapies or because I'm concerned about the differential, if the patient is uh, thought to be at risk for or is in alcohol withdrawal, I would strongly reinforce that point that this really is one of the few strong indications, I think, for getting an alcohol level in the emergency department uh, is to, because you know, if that guy has significant withdrawal, and it's almost always a guy, um, at, at, a high, at a high level, um, then you're really in for, for a rough ride. I will say I am uh, so much smarter today for having sat around this virtual table with you all. I, uh, Despite sort of being part of these initiatives, learning about these things, there's much I learned today about medications, 
routes, timing, you name it. Um, but I'm also recognizing that, you know, uh, I'm sitting around a table of experts and people who are really zealous to improve care for this nationally, thinking about this as what we can do as emergency physicians. Um, and that's not the environment that many of our EDs that are part of the Equal Initiative live within. They may have chief medical officers that are, you know, trying to improve their CMS hospital quality star ratings, or they may have uh, leadership in their departments that are very focused on stroke care and sepsis care, increasing their referrals for cancer care. And so one of the things I think is really hard is um, how do we get any traction for this work? And how do we make sure that our efforts at quality improvement here um, are actually pushing the needle, getting resources, getting supported? And, and Lewis, I know you're as chairs, so you probably, you know, have to look at the whole portfolio all the time. How do you negotiate this stuff? It's a tough one. I mean, first of all, even getting our faculty, residents, nurses, and others to be excited about this has been a challenge. I mean, again, as we said right at the beginning of this discussion, uh, this is a population we've been ignoring for our entire careers and many, many millennia before that, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, trying to gather resources for something that even we don't get very excited about from people who um, don't do our job day to day has been uh, quite a challenge. I think the 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 like with many things that we do in the emergency department, the area that we have to focus on isn't necessarily the revenue generation side of the equation, but the cost savings side of the equation. You know, these are a patient population who we would call quote unquote frequent flyers very often. They're, recid they're recidivist visitors. We see them all the time. They come in with complicated problems. They have a lot of problems that are related to their outcomes. These are the people with liver disease and GI bleeds and trauma who then wind up leading to you know excessive costs to the hospital because of course we are going to take care of them when they come up with any of these problems so trying to address the problem early or as early as we can to sort of stave off any of these later complications behooves the institution as a cost saving measure and as a quality as a quality measure good optics for the institution it's a feel good it, it's something we could kind of talk about and and be proud of that we're addressing an unmet need of society these social determinants of health that are that are looked at in many in many measures as as a marker of quality uh, and something that we have to really be supportive of so I would actually, I would just go back to when some of us started doing this work around opioid use disorder, you know, one of the things that we heard a lot about was initial resistance. And then people talked about treating these, um, the, these illnesses that are, as Ruben said, you know, the, the front row show to the, the saddest show on earth, you know, we, to, to, to providing um, treatment for opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder for people who are interested in, in, in receiving it, you know, as really a source of wellness and satisfaction and overall, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that we hear over and over again is that um, people feel better about their job and that this, you know, treating, treating these, um, uh, identifying these individuals and offering them treatment is something that is very consistent with why they went into medicine in the first place. And I think part of it is just that, you know, we didn't necessarily focus on tools before. Um, you know, I think that if we can help provide, you know, tools to, I mean, not just treat the the withdrawal or the one thing that, um, you know, may not be, a, you know, a life sort of trajectory changing position, but if you can help people find that, um, you know, as a clinician, I think that's one of the most rewarding things we do. One last thing I want to get give everybody a chance for is if any of you are sports fans like me, you appreciate the last word. And so today I have to ask folks, 
if you had any final advice or parting advice for that clinician with a patient with severe alcohol withdrawal, what would you tell them? Well, I'll start by uh, uh, reinforcing what Lewis said at the beginning, which is that we want to favor oral medications whenever possible. So unless you um, know that this is someone that needs immediate intravenous therapy because they have they're delirious because they have very unstable vitals. They look like they may be heading towards possible airway problems. Um, start with um, uh, appropriate dose uh, oral medications. Um, and then uh, for that patient who is in that first category where you are very concerned that they're um, going to escalate and require a very high level of care, that you're truly dealing with recalcitrant severe alcohol use disorder, uh, sorry, severe alcohol withdrawal, um, consider a loading dose of, um, a weight-based loading dose of phenobarbital, 10 milligrams per kilogram over 15 to 30 minutes uh, as an option. Yeah, and I'll take a slightly different approach to a final word, which is how we really do need, as kind of Kate was alluding to, we really need to change our mindset about how we manage uh, and approach this population. You know, OUD, uh, the medications just are better. I mean, we just, you know, this is the, the things we have to offer for, for people with alcohol use disorder. They're nibbling away at the edges. They're not hitting home runs the way that, you know, buprenorphine and, and methadone and, and naltrexone are for people with OUD. Um, but we really do need to get behind the important role that we play in the healthcare system. As Ruben commented earlier, we are it. I mean, for many of these people, we're their only touch point that they're going to have for care. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to do it, both ethical and 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 wellness and financial and et cetera. Uh, but this is this is what we do. I mean, this is our job. We are kind of the stewards of public health in many ways for the for the health system. And it's something that we have to we have to figure out how to do. We may require the department to write a guideline. You might have to develop relationships with outpatient treatment centers. Many cities and states don't have their own inpatient centers in their own institutions. They have to they have to make you know arrangements with outside institutions to do this kind of work. But this is important. It's the work that we do, and it's it's just a, such a big part of the practice of emergency medicine. Ruben, Lewis, Kate, and Scott, this was a wonderful discussion. Thank you all for getting together today. I learned a ton. I'm definitely walking away from today remembering that it's not just benzos when it comes to treating alcohol withdrawal. I am definitely walking away from today recognizing that there's multiple pathways by which we can, in the emergency department, impact a care trajectory that keeps people out of the ICU, keeps them from getting admitted to the hospital. And I'm walking away from today recognizing that we really need protocols in each of our EDs that standardizes this care, makes it easy for the folks on the front line to make the best choices. So thank you all. Appreciate your insights, your expertise, and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast.